Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by former Liberal Premier of Ontario, Kathleen Wynne. She served as the Liberal MPP for Don Valley West beginning in 2003. She subsequently held a number of cabinet portfolios in the McGuinty government, and in 2013, she became leader and then premier, being the first woman and openly gay person to be the premier of Ontario. We discussed many things, including how she came to politics, the need for a thick skin in this business at times, and both areas of accomplishment in her political life, as well as a bit of a reflection on things she'd have done differently. We also discussed the incompetent populism we currently see at Queen's Park that has now delivered two conservative majority governments, and so the continued need for a strong opposition in the Ontario Liberal Party. Kathleen, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. Nice to see you. It's nice to see you too. I think the last time we saw one another was at the launch of Mary Margaret's campaign, a successful right. campaign, uh, one of the few successful campaigns, sadly. My uh, my mom found a photo recently uh, in that uh, at her place, and it's a picture of my brother and I and a friend of mine, and I must have been about 12, and I'm holding up a sign saying, Snow, uh, Snowblin, finish your own education before you start on ours. I was pretty proud of that sign at the time. And it was my first foray into realizing the difference that politics makes for better and worse and the need to participate. And my parents were both public school teachers and, and active in those pickets and protests and, and brought us along and involved us. And I'm, I'm thankful for all of that. Most people know your career as premier and and that's the tail end of your career, really, when it comes to politics. When it comes to how you got involved, what, where and how does that story start? It starts just a bit before you were holding that sign. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you and I could both, we could both argue that our roots, um, our path to politics started very young. You've talked about when you were 12. My first political action was in 19, I don't know, 66, 67. Girls weren't allowed to wear pants to school. I led a protest and, you know, we, a bunch of us wore pants to school. We were in grade nine or grade 10. How, how dare you? <laughs> I know. And we were sent home and we got notes from our mothers. And so this went on for a few weeks and we finally got to wear pants to school. But the immediate motivation for me getting involved in politics was publicly funded education. And I actually ran to be a public school trustee in 1994. So before Mike Harris was elected premier of Ontario, because there were things about the Toronto board, which was the Toronto board of education at that time before amalgamation, there were things about the board. My kids were all in, in school. They were all little kids in elementary school. And there were things I wanted to see improved. I lost that vote by 72 votes. And then in 1995, Mike Harris was elected, and it was Mike Harris's election, uh, this conservative premier who was really intent on breaking what I saw as a social contract between the population of Ontario and its government that got me motivated. I got involved with John Sewell. We fought back against the amalgamation of the city. We fought against the changes that John Snowblin was making in the education system. Um, and that's really what that's what really got me into that provincial level. I think without the election of Harris, um, I might have run for school trustee again. I might have stayed at the local level. I might have run for city council, although education was really the motivator. So um, I, I doubt I would have gotten involved in provincial politics. So it was a it was an opposition to what I saw as a very dangerous set of policies that uh, that got me involved. 
It's interesting. When I got involved federally, it was the combination of the desire for renewal and the optimism that Trudeau was advocating for and open nominations and, and empowering parliamentarians. But it was the majority government of Stephen Harper that really was mm -hmm. a, a strong motivator. And I, I can appreciate the when you look at the dismantling of really important values at the provincial level or at the federal level, it, it is it is obviously a really strong motivator. You mentioned your experience in 1994 and, and such a close election. It was also a nasty election from what I have read in some ways, to the extent that that information is still available because, and, and it speaks to the need in some ways for a thick skin in politics that I, I'd read, I don't know if this is on Wikipedia, so tell me if it's true, but I, I had read that there was an organization that basically called you an extremist lesbian in that 1994 race. And then, yeah. you know, subsequently, obviously, uh, as premier, you were subject to incredibly nasty attacks. The first door my brother knocked on pretty near, we knocked on a door and they scared him off the porch to say, all liberals are pedophiles. And it was in the context of the, the massive misinformation related to the sex ed curriculum that you're bringing in. But the conservatives have really gone at you in particular. And... At the same time, you've been out there saying we need more women in politics. We need to get young people involved in politics. I go into schools and, and say the same thing. And how do you bring those two competing ideas together where it's a really nasty business at times, but we need good people to get involved and you want to bring new people in the process, but you also have to be honest and realistic with them? Yeah, so that that extremist lesbian, there was a flyer dropped at every door in the in the ward that said extremist lesbian. And I joked at the time that I took more offense to extremists than lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I what I say, you know, one of the reasons I'm having this conversation with you and I'm saying yes to doing podcasts and, and speaking engagements is that I think it's really important that young people hear that yes, it's nasty. It can be very, very tough. And social media has made it nastier. Since 1994, you know, between 1994 and today, the ability of um, people who are hateful to get their vitriol into the into the public discourse has has just exponentially increased. So so that's very that's very tough. Um, but the the fact is that there is so much good that you can do as a as an elected representative. And what I always say to young people is it is absolutely worth it. You know, you have to have your coping mechanisms. You know, you have to not read the comments. You have to not go down those rabbit holes. You have to have a team around you who can help filter that stuff for you. You have to have a thick skin, but you have to have a porous skin because you've got to hear the critique and be able to withstand the the slings and arrows at the same time, you know, but you've got to keep your eye on why you're doing it, you know, and, and for me, you know, people, people ask me, what is it, what's the thing you're proudest of? Well, I am very, very proud of the work that I did with individuals in my constituency who had nowhere to turn, you know, I had really strong constituency staff, I went to hundreds and hundreds of events over the years and showed up for people and supported them in their endeavors. And that work is a complete antidote to the nastiness of uh, of the public discourse. You know, it it really it really is. And the other thing is that people, when they're anonymous or they're in a crowd and therefore anonymous, can be way more angry and um, 
unkind, cruel than when you meet them face to face, you know? And I remember doing um, Ontario Today, the call-in show on CBC just after the 2018 election. And Rita Chelley was asking me a question, this, this exact question about how did I stand all the stuff that was coming at me? And I said, well, you know, in a group, I think people get caught up in, and I think social media is a group, right? They get caught up in this kind of group think but once you meet people face to face, and I have knocked on thousands and thousands of doors and met thousands of people in this province, and 99.9% of them are decent. They may not have voted for me. I have people, lovely people say that to me all the time. You know, I never voted for you, but, you know, we had a good conversation. They're lovely people. You know, they're just trying to get on with their lives. So that for me is the bulk of the population. And then there are these voices who, you know, who are angry, we have to listen to them, we have to figure out what's making them angry. And I think people like Pierre Poliev are actually, they're, they're um, magnifying those voices, you know, and so we, we as liberals need to understand that. But on a personal level, Nate, I, you know, I have found such solace in the decency of the people of Ontario that, that the other stuff kind of fades. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. It does hurt. It's hard to deal with. But I, you know, I found a way to compartmentalize it, know what was going to come at me and then um, go out and be able to deal with the good in people as opposed to that bile. Right. You're right about not reading the comments. I tell my parents not to read the comments <laughs> because they, they will text me I'm like, I'm not reading the comments. Please don't read the comments. And tell them about them. But uh, uh, in some ways. I also don't take seriously the the nastiness when it gets that nasty. And mm -hmm. and yet I would be pretty frustrated if I were in your shoes, not in relation to that the 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 nasty and and attacks that ha have no seriousness to them whatsoever, but where you were attacked for hydro rates, for example, and mm -hmm. you were attacked for fisc on, on fiscal sustainability grounds. And then you've got Doug Ford that gets elected in part from leveling those kinds of attacks, and then he turns around. You got recently the Ontario Ontario's fiscal financial accountability officer yeah. reveal that the 2018 promise to cut hydro rates is a broken promise. He stated the government isn't going to be reducing electricity bills. Somehow that wasn't an election issue at all in this past election. Yeah. I, I don't I know. know how. And then the Liberal government, your government, was attacked for its fiscal approach. And then we've got Ford running deficits and including adding to the deficit through gimmicky campaign style moves like the elimination of the license plate yeah. rule fee. And, and again, it's not an election issue at all. And, and so here you are attacked on certain grounds and, and Ford gets a free pass. That would be maddening. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, quite apart from my political career or my feelings or my, you know, my trajectory, I think the big problem we've got in the, the political realm right now is that, um, truth has really been a victim of, uh, of a populist sentiment, right? So it didn't start with Donald Trump. It got really exacerbated with, with Donald Trump. Um, Doug Ford has been standing up in the legislature for over four years, talking, you know, telling untruths about what we did or didn't do and, and getting away with it. Because I think he, um, you know, he has a an aura 
of being able to connect with people at some kind of emotional um, hail fellow well met way, you know, and Pierre Polyevre taps into the same way Ford does taps into um, anger at people who have um, who have been in power or, you know, this whole notion of elites. I mean, I think that's the big problem we have in our liberal democracy right now is that, um, you know, policies that are based on evidence, uh, science, expertise are being devalued. Our institutions are being devalued, you know, and what do we do in a society where we don't respect the institutions that actually have provided the the quality of life and the decency of our um, of our living for so long. Like, how do we how do we counteract that? And so there are the individual voices on uh, on social media, and there are the politicians like Doug Ford. But then there are you know there's talk radio. There are organizations like Ontario Proud and Canada Proud. These organizations that are intent on repeating lies, repeating a vile take on what's happening. And it and they have they have a lot of access and a very simple message, not even simple, simplistic message to deliver to people. And in a complex time, people are looking for answers. You know, people want to know how are we going to make this better? Things are not the way I thought they were going to be. You know, I feel disappointed. I feel worried about my kids. I I can see the fires and I can see the flooding and I'm worried and I want to know that it's going to be okay. And so somebody like Doug Ford comes along and says, oh yeah, it's going to be fine. I want to believe that, you know, people want to believe that. And as liberals, we haven't been able to say it's going to be fine because we want we want to tell people the truth and we want to put in place policies that are actually going to make things better, you know? So when Doug Ford came in and smashed our cap and, tra- our cap and trade system and now has replaced it with a, a really watered down climate plan, thank goodness the federal government is there to pick up that slack. But, you know, the province, the biggest province in the country should be doing its part and we're not. So, People, people just want him to cut gas tax. You know, they just want gas prices to go down. That's not a long-term solution. But I think that's how he and they have beaten us because they have tapped into those anxieties. I mean, in this budget, he's going to send $400 to families or, or some amount, some like some few hundred dollars to help their kids catch up because of the school loss. Well, that's not going to help the kids catch up. What's going to help the kids catch up is to have the right personnel in our schools. And yet he's going to get support because he's going to put 200, 300, 400 dollars in people's hands. So that's the kind of simplistic response to complexity that has been difficult for us as liberals to uh, to counteract. And it's why I think Ford has been as successful as he has been, sadly. Mm-hmm. That and misogyny. <laughs> You know, there's a lot there. You mentioned the importance of leadership within the Federation by Canada's largest province and Mm -hmm. on climate action. Obviously, we wouldn't have the CPP enhancement that we ultimately had without leadership at at, at the provincial level in Ontario to push for that kind of reform. And so that can be incredibly important leadership. Well, at the same time, I, I, I just want to stop you there because that's exactly right. We pushed. We pushed the federal government, but if you go to climate change, I saw a, um, 
I saw something that was put out by the provincial government just yesterday that talked about the reductions that we've made in Ontario since 2005 in GHG emissions. They go back to 2005 because they want to take in the shutting down of the coal-fired plants because that's the biggest reduction in Canadian history, you know? So it's so disingenuous. And he doesn't say, and that's because starting with Elizabeth Whitmer, she did start it very, very tentatively, but Dalton and I shut down those coal-fired plants, you know, so, so there's no honesty in the, um, the story that's being told about how Ontario has gotten to where it's, where it is. And Ontario has now abdicated leadership on all of those files. And it's an interesting time when it comes to the renewal of the provincial liberal party because there it's time for a, a proper renewal and and uh, grassroots renewal in a serious way and 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 i think a time for generational change in the same way that i saw at the federal level and lived through at the federal level mm -hmm. from 2011 to 2015 in some ways but i spoke to a, a woman involved in uh, hastings lennox addington and she was very frustrated that we weren't also defending the good things about governments that have come before. And, and she identified the climate action and the phasing out of the coal-fired uh, electricity as, as a key part of that. And and we we have to create something new at the same time as, as we defend the record mm -hmm. where there is a really strong record. Um, now, you said you, you mentioned populism and there's a negative connotation, obviously, you know, pointing to Pierre Poilev and, you know, uh, attacking institutions, for example, in, in an unfortunate way to try and tear them down with a populist message can be really problematic. You mentioned Donald Trump. That's an even worse example of populism. There is also a need, I think, to tap into, in some cases, frustration, in, in other cases, to not to embolden that frustration and make it worse, but to address that frustration. And I, I think of areas around consumer protection issues. I, I went at the Rogers CEO recently and and there's a great frustration that we need to that we need to address when it comes to affordability considerations and and there's a populist demand for us addressing if we if we ignore it then that is that is our fault and it Absolutely. will be our loss similarly when you look at the inequality wealth inequality in particular but inequality in our society there's a frustration at seeing such great inequality at times in, in our society, especially around wealth. And if we don't address that, there's a there's a populist message there that would be a, a positive message, I think, in a really serious way. And even when you look at Doug Ford, Doug Ford came into government and he cut childcare. He came into government and he did away with the minimum wage. And then because of this need to be loved and this populist message that he wants to deliver, by the end of that four years, he he's adopting yeah. a federal approach to childcare and putting more money into that system our money but he's putting he's in, he's embracing that system in the way he he did not when he first got in and he's returning not in the same way that was initially in place but he's returning to a minimum wage because he's realizing that it it's a demand from a majority of Ontarians right right yeah and i think i think we've made i can i can say i've made mistakes you know i mean i by not doing exactly what you're what you're talking about i didn't get on hydro rates early enough you know i mean i i did not i did not put the hydro plan in place soon enough to deal with the fact that there were people particularly people outside the urban communities who were who were paying unfair distribution rates and they were they were suffering disproportionately because of the investments we had made in uh, the electric grid for example so 
so you're you're absolutely right. We need to listen to people's needs and respond to them for sure. Um, but there's a lack of coherence in the populism that I'm talking about with you know Polyevra and uh, and Ford. And I liked I'd like to think that we could we could be more coherent in our response. You know that that the things that we would do would not would not kind of um, veer from one philosophy to another or would just do away with philosophy altogether, but would actually have some kind of some kind of uh, base in evidence of how we move the society forward and how we actually make things better. So that if you're going to find a way to cut the the expenses of government, you don't cut childcare, which is actually something that will bring money to the treasury because more women will be able to get into the the workforce you know i mean that kind of inconsistency does not make any sense so i completely agree with you we have to be better about listening to people's concerns their day-to-day -day concerns i think that as a government um and i i try really try not to be defensive but i think as a government we we did listen to what people were worried about. I mean, that's why we brought in OHIP Plus, which was sort of the beginning of pharmacare in Ontario. We, you know, we did try to listen around things like minimum wage, things like basic income. You know, we tried to address those issues. But I think where we didn't, we didn't do as good a job was in those pocketbook day-to-day -day irritants. And right now, those are huge because of inflation. You know, people are very, very worried about their ability to make ends meet at the, the end of the month. And we have to address that. And and that is that is absolutely important and has to be done. What we don't have to do is buy into, you know, angry um, conflictual politics. You know, I don't yeah. think we have to do that. And that's the other side of the populism that um, that the the politicians we're talking about really really um, build on. Yeah, and jump from one issue to another yeah. to find where the votes are and to embolden the yeah. anger. And there isn't a, a, any philosophy, as you say, but there's also in the end, it's prioritizing electioneering over. The public good and 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 so the job really is to identify the best ideas in service of the public good and then to find a way to connect those issues to the reality from in most people's lives and climate action is an interesting one because many people care about climate action for their kids unquestionably so and there are a number of people who also care about doing our part around the world but increasingly it's obvious i think to many but it's also about jobs and it's about jobs today. And there's a, a direct way to connect the issue into people's lives, economic growth and productivity and, and ultimately economic prosperity for this province. And so I think, again, there's an area where I was I was shocked, frankly, that, that this wasn't an election issue where economic growth is a serious issue in difficult times. Yeah. And yeah. here's an obvious area of economic growth and, and we're giving them a free pass. Well, and, you know, it's so interesting to me when when Ford came into office, um, he was he was absolutely adamant about how we had killed the auto sector. We had killed manufacturing in the province. We had you know, we had made a mess of uh, of the economy, which was not true. I mean, it just was it was not true. And, you know, when he shut down the um, electric vehicle uh, rebates, he shut down the building of charging stations. And then over the last 
two years, he's come back to understanding that actually the investments that had been made in the auto sector, like the 200 jobs in Oshawa GM that were engineering jobs on electric vehicles that we made, that actually built to the reality that electric vehicles are where our future is, you know? And so, so I think that there is absolutely a way to tie those big concerns, those big existential issues to the economic capacity of this province. We have such residual, even just in manufacturing, we have such residual expertise because of um, our history in uh, in auto and beyond in, in agri-food, for example. We, we can build on that and we can tie those industries because that's where the future of the industry is. Ford is Ford is investing in electric vehicles because the industry told him that's what they're going to build. You know, it's the industry that has had to lead him because he was, you know, he was not interested in he was not interested in doing anything that looked too capital L liberal. Right. Yeah, he slowly pulled his head out of the sand yeah. on that issue, but but far too slowly for the benefit of Ontarians and Canadians and, and people around the world. And, and we can be and, proactive, right? We can we can actually, as a province, we can get ahead of these issues if we pay attention to if we pay attention to the evidence and and at the same time don't lose track of what people need in their lives. Exactly. And I hope there's also an opportunity to seriously hold the government to account on the healthcare issue in the coming months, because obviously healthcare has been under stress for any number of years. And, you know, we, we have the conversation at the federal level about putting dollars in, but making sure there are strings attached to make sure that yeah. we're seeing results with our federal dollars. And I know there's a battle brewing as between provinces and the federal government on that front too. So there's a lot that will go into the healthcare conversation. But when we see emergency departments closing, and this is mere month, like two months after the election where it wasn't again, an election issue at all. And you've got now the, the the new minister saying, oh, this isn't a, a crisis at all. And, and people are left scratching their heads. And, and I think in, in, in some shock that the minister is willing to say such a thing. But do you think that in the immediate term, that seems like an area where, as far as opposition parties go at Queen's Park, they've got to really focus the their attention and the accountability on that front, knowing that we've just lived through a pandemic and healthcare is always top of mind, but especially top of mind. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's going to be the number one issue for the next year, for sure, if not longer. I think it's pretty shocking that there was nothing in the uh, throne speech that indicated that they were actually going to address um, the concerns, because I think there are things that can be done. I think there are immediate cash infusions that could be made. I think that there's more work in terms of getting getting um, some of those people who have left the system to come back. But that would require backing down on Bill 124, which is the capping of the salaries. You know, I think, Nate, that there's a chance we're heading for a pretty rough time in terms of labor um, in the province. Um, I know that there were protesters on the front lawn of Queen's Park this week calling for a general strike. Um, if if we get into a situation where the government is fighting both with education and with health, I think that, 
you could see, you know, you could see a lot of unrest, which is not going to be helpful. What needs to happen right now is there needs to be a really wise and thoughtful ongoing conversation with frontline healthcare providers. And he needs to sit down with them in the same way that he needs to sit down with education providers and really figure out what the immediate solutions are while you work on the long-term system coordination issues. Because, you know, we've had We've had emergency room challenges for years. And when we lost government in 2018, we were in the process of trying to continue that the, to build the coordination so people would have better primary care 24-7 and they wouldn't feel the need to go to the emergency room. Um, I mean, that's just one issue. But one of the issues with this government is that they don't really listen to frontline people. You know, they they bring in they bring in the people who they want to hear from. It's a bit of an echo chamber. And I know from, you know, the four years I've sat there as an MPP um, and dealing with the education sector, when there is a meeting between the minister and the frontline people, it's just the minister telling them what is going to happen. It's not a back and forth. It's not a a constructive conversation. And we need that very badly right now. This guy has just won re-election. This is the time when he should be working collaboratively with the with the healthcare sector. And I, I don't see it happening and I'm very worried about it. Mm. Not least, you know, for lots of reasons, not least of which is I have a daughter who works in an emergency room, you know, and uh, she's an eMERGE nurse. And, you know, I I know the stress that those folks are under because they're always understaffed. People are just not coming into work or they're disappearing. And then you add to that the fact that so many of the, so much of the care and, and so many of the beds that are taken up are really for alternate, alternate levels of care yes, that are, yeah. aren't available. And so there are, there are many aspects to this and labor is a huge part of it as you've identified. Yeah. There are also elements of needing to look at the total system and say, how do we make sure we're delivering the emergency care that we need to provide and we're providing this other care to open up space in the in the emergency wards. And I there are a lot there are big picture issues around preventative health care, but they don't they don't they don't help in the immediate term, uh, unfortunately. And so I I, I think I, I you know again on that question of populism and the desire to be loved, I do, I do wonder at what point Ford says, oh, okay, I need to deal with this because people are really mad at me and I don't want people to be mad at me. Yeah, I think at some point he will put some he will put some money into the system. I think I think that's what will happen. I don't know if he's I don't think he's going to be able to withstand the pressure not to do that. Exactly. But the problem is if he doesn't do that in conjunction with the bigger conversation. So the working conditions of nurses, you know, what are they going to do about sick days, for example, you know, yeah. PSWs, to your point about alternative level of care and long term care and home care. If if we don't work to improve the working conditions of those PSWs who are saints, Nate, I mean, they are saints, they do the toughest job under the worst conditions for the smallest amount of money. And if we don't find a way to make sure that those folks are taken care of and they can actually take care of their own families and they can schedule a full-time job and they're not running from pillar to post and not being paid for it. So those issues have to be dealt with as well. So yes, I think he will put some money into the system, but I'm I'm, you know, I'm not confident that he's going to have the discussion that will create a coherent plan with a with a a bunch of different um 
threads in it that will lead to a stronger system. You know, even the fact that when they came in, they got rid of the local health in integration networks. Now you can say, okay, bureaucracy, whatever. But what that meant was that the coordination that was underway got stopped. And now People don't know where they're going with these Ontario health teams. They're not sure what the, you know, what the next steps are going to be. It was mid-process when COVID hit. And so I think the system is very much in a state of flux, which does not help in terms of frontline clarity, right? I mentioned PSWs. My mother-in-law passed away a number of years ago after a two-year battle with cancer and there's a PSW Connie who this is in small town, Southwestern Ontario outside of Petrolia. And, you know, the hospital in, in London is a, is a distance away when you, when you need to go for the, the, the more intense care that you need. And so the PSW was, was massively important yeah. to Sharon's life and to the, and to our family. And, and she also became part of the family. Like it was like the, the level of care was increased because of the relationship that she also built and with, with Sharon and the rest of us. And, and so not investing in that kind of care is, yeah. I, I think also a failure to learn the lesson of the pandemic in a serious way where there was this moment, which is fading, unfortunately, but there was this moment where people realized these individuals on the front line are, are in some ways the most important kind of care. And we need to make sure we're investing in these people. We've certainly at the federal level made promises around putting more money into the healthcare system. Again, conditions attached, that would be one of those conditions, support for PSWs and increasing wages. And I, I, I do feel like we'll see improvements in the same way we saw in fits and starts changes throughout the pandemic, but it really felt like civil society was dragging the yeah. government along yeah. and there was a, a, a total absence of leadership. Exactly. And that's what I mean by getting ahead of these issues. I mean, there is a way to do that, but it means that you have to you have to be in constant communication and in constant relationship with the people who know what's going on, you know, and uh, this government has not been willing to engage with with the sectors in that way. They've been afraid to. They don't really pe want people to know what their plan is because it's pretty clear they don't have a plan. I think that's why the mandate letters have not been released. There hasn't there hasn't really been a coherent plan, you know, or the plan that's there is not one that people would uh, would be supportive of. So so I think there you know there's a real gap in terms of the the policy development process, and that's why you see Ford whoever he's listened to last, that's where he goes, you know. So if it's Walmart saying you know we need to be able to sell groceries and so we can sell everything and you know and all the small businesses are saying well why why are they able to sell clothes when we're not able to open our doors right so there has not been coherence and that has not served us well in uh, in Ontario and it and it really it makes me very worried about what comes next because when covid started me we were sitting in the legislature and a lot of us wondered okay before covid started Okay, they've come in, they've tried to smash the stuff that we did as liberals. Um, now what are they going to do? Nobody knew what their next steps were, you know, because he hadn't come in with a vision for what he wanted to do in the province. He came in, he realized the fiscal situation was not as bad as they were saying it was. It was nothing like a $15 billion deficit, you know. And so because there was nothing there, COVID actually gave him 
a purpose, you know, COVID actually created a direction for, um, for this government. And now they're kind of back at that same place where things are getting better on the COVID front. I mean, I know it's not done and we still have to be uh, vigilant, but it's very hard to discern what the vision for the province is apart from it's going to be a strong economy. Well, okay, but give me the specifics of that. Tell me exactly what that means. And how does it not mean a strong education system? Because if you want a strong economy in a province, you better make sure every kid who's able can get into post-secondary. That's one of the things that was cut when he came into office. We had free tuition for low-income kids in this province. He cut that. And so that means there's a whole portion of the population that has brilliance in it, just like every other sector of the population. Those kids are not going to college and university. They're not all going to want to go to skilled trades. I get that we need more skilled trades, but not every kid who comes from a low-income family is necessarily geared to go to um, to the skilled trades. So, so that's what I mean. There isn't a vision that looks across government and says these are all the things that we need to uh, we need to be working on. Community hubs. You know, we had a we had a strategy whereby we were um, putting incentives in place for institutions in communities to work together. So whether it was health dollars or education dollars to co-locate services and to create hubs of service, all of that work went out the window when uh, when the government was elected. And those kinds of initiatives can save dollars in communities and therefore can make the delivery of service more efficient. Anyway, I get, I'm going to get off my soapbox because we're running out of time. Well, so, but on, on uh, to maybe get off the soapbox, but, but be a bit reflective on, on the fact that, okay, we've, we've had two elections now, so I, we can, we can, we can go down the list of frustrations before. I mean, you mentioned basic income as an example, and I have a constituent who went to town halls where Doug Ford was at in the 2018 election, and he said he was going to keep the yeah. pilot, and then he cut the pilot, and the, the about face and, and the dishonesty to politics is maddening, and we can, I can run down the list, and you can run down the list better than I can. But he won a majority government in 2018, and he won a majority government this past election, and we went from seven seats to eight seats uh, as an Ontario Liberal Party, and now there's this moment in time and the federal liberals, we've gone through this where there's been a sort of existential crisis of what does it mean to be a liberal and how do we renew the party and how do we grow again? And I think some in provincial circles are, are having the same kind of conversation. Some will say, well, we need to go back to the center or, or further further right. And, and, and I do think there's a coalition of business liberals and people who care about climate action, but also care about fiscal responsibility and sustainability. Sure, they need to be part of the coalition, but so too people who care about strength and social safety net and people who care about poverty reduction need to be part of the coalition too. You've, you've mentioned labor a few times as well, and, and labor seems like it's even gone in some cases to support Ford in this past election. What what do you see when you when you reflect on your career in politics, what you've seen most recently with the Provincial Liberal Party and what you see the Liberal Party needing going forward? What course should the party set for itself in terms of in terms of its direction? Well, I think I really think what we should do, Nate, is um, take a breath and understand that our value system, what made us liberals, because, you know, I, 
there were lots of people who were surprised that I joined the Liberal Party and ran for Liberals rather than the NDP because people thought, oh, well, you're a left winger and you, you know, why aren't you running for the NDP? Um, I even remember Lynn McLeod when I first uh, when I first declared that I was running for a Liberal nomination. She said, oh, I thought you would have been with the other team. I'm thrilled you're with us, but I thought you'd be with the other team. Um, because who we are is a group of people who are interested in pulling solutions from across the political spectrum. We are practical, you know, Dalton used to say practical problem solvers. We are very practical. We understand that the economy depends on strong private sector uh, endeavors. We understand that the private sector has a lot to bring to the table. We want to work with the private sector. But at the same time, we understand that the public sector, while it can't do everything, is critical to our quality of life and is critical to serving that desire to look after each other. You know, that's that's at the core of why the public sector is important, you know. And so I think we need to reconnect with that. Um, people will say that I took the party too far to the left. I fought members of my caucus to make sure we kept fiscal constraints in place. I probably did too much of that in the first couple of years that I was premier. You know, we kept costs down to a really um, serious degree because we were trying to balance the budget on the on the timetable that, uh, that Dwight Duncan had put in place. And we did that by 2017. But at the same time, I was working to make investments that I believed we needed. So yeah, the Ontario basic income project took, it took tens of millions of dollars. It didn't take hundreds of millions of dollars, but it would have given us evidence about how we could improve the social safety net, right? So I was trying to do things as we went along that would help us to build the fabric. I don't think that's left-wing ideology. I think that is practical. I think it's consistent with us, with our value system as liberals. And I think that's what we re need to reconnect with without labeling, you know, I think if we get into an argument about how far left or how far right, first of all, that's not how people think. And it's actually kind of a it's kind of an unhelpful metric right now, I believe, um, in terms of the relationship to labor. You know, Doug Ford has captured private sector labor because he was putting money into infrastructure building. So were we. But he did it. You know, he did it in a way that the developers felt that they had a, a free hand, you know, so that that appealed to the, the private sector. <clears throat> We're never going to do that, but we can continue to demonstrate our commitment to building the province. So I, I don't think we have to veer away from who we are fundamentally. And honestly, I think if we do that, we're going to continue to fail. You know, I, I just, I think we have to, we have to be honest about who we are. We can't talk about the past. We can't, you know, talk about all the great things that we've done. We have to talk about what we're going to do going forward, but that has to be rooted in who we are. I think it's, it's right to say we, we can't navel gaze and, and ignore the fact that fundamentally and, and liberal parties are big tents, conservative parties are big tents and there will be disagreements. And I have battled with colleagues on different issues and the party's better for it. And, and yeah. out of that reasonable disagreement and, in the end, I I fundamentally got involved with liberal politics because I believe in smart, fair, and honest government, and that means 
that you know, and, and there are so many issues that match that. You know, we've talked about climate, but it's about doing the right thing as a matter of future generations. But it's also smart for our economy. There, there's so many of these issues that touch both reasons of compassion, but yeah. also they're they're the smart thing to do for our society. And and I, I I don't think we we need to reinvent so many wheels. I mean, similarly, when it comes to social progress, you know, a stronger social safety net, especially for kids, the can shall benefit. It, at the federal level, that is a, an incredibly important tool as a matter of compassion and dignity, but it's also an incredibly important tool as, a, as, as it relates to equality of opportunity. And and so I, I don't which think is we, an economic, uh, which is an economic we have to pull these driver, ideas apart. Which is an economic driver. Exactly, exactly. Equality of opportunity <clears throat> and, and so, equality of health outcomes are economic drivers. Exactly. And so there's so many instances where the economic progress depends upon yeah. social progress. And, and there are other instances where that isn't the case, but social progress depends upon a fiscal sustainable, fiscally sustainable lens. Otherwise, you get the seesaw of governments of increases and then cuts. And so yeah. you need to make sure these programs are on fiscally sustainable fo uh, footings in the interest of those programs. And and so I don't think it's overly complicated in some ways to articulate who we are. We just need to make sure we do a better job of that. And as you say, articulate what it looks like on a going forward basis. Now, I say articulate what it looks like on a going forward basis, but I'm going to ask you to be more retrospective at the moment because you have lived a long uh, life in politics and I'm a firm believer that I should learn the lessons and from the mistakes made by those who came before me and not from my own mistakes. So I made my own mistakes, but ideally I learned from the mistakes of others and uh, I'm interested when you reflect on your career, ignore mistakes for a moment and think of what you would point to as accomplishments that you say, I got involved in politics to make a difference and here are the ways I made a difference. And then also, if you were to point to areas where you would say, I wish I had done this differently, and, and then we can maybe learn from that. Yeah, so I, I think that um, the things that I am proudest of, I'm, I talked a little bit about, um, you know, the individuals that whose lives I touched in the constituency. I'm very, I'm very proud of those things. And those are not well known to anybody, you know, they're not going to be written up in any history books. But, but I know that as a constituency politician, you can make a, a huge difference in people's lives. And those relationships are very precious. Um I think that, you know, the work that we did in education, we were recovering from the Harris government. I think that the both the staff increases and the um, the philosophical and curricular changes that we made, whether it whether it was, you know, towards the end of my term as minister of education, uh, the sex education stuff. But even more importantly, early on in my term as minister of education, the the equity work that we did and restoring an expectation that equity would be part of what schools expect and um, that equity is important in terms of the outcome for kids. Um, setting up the anti-racism directorate, you know, um, those those I think are really important signals that we um, that we need to we we need as a society to pay attention to because we know that systemic racism costs us billions of dollars a year in human capital, you know, and the ability of people to get ahead. So I'm I'm proud that we were a government that tackled those things as well as um, uh, the financial inequality. Um, you know, Dalton started with the child benefit and we put in place um, supports. Not enough, Nate. I mean, it, it's not enough what we had done. I mean, that's why I brought the basic income pilot in because we kept kind of um, 
incrementally changing a social safety net that really wasn't working. We raised the minimum wage and tried to address some of those concerns. So I'm proud of that work because fundamentally, government exists to do the things that people can't do for themselves, you know, and so making sure that young people who came from um, uh, a less affluent background could go to university in the same way that someone who came from an affluent background. To me, that's what government should be doing, you know, is leveling that playing field. Life's never going to be fair, but government can inject more fairness into uh, people's lives. So that's what I'm proud of. Where did I, you know, where did I fall down? What am I not proud of? I think we talked about it earlier. I think there were times when I just didn't pay close enough attention to the day-to-day lives of uh, people and the cost that they were bearing and the um, the feelings of inadequacy in terms of uh, of their uh, their lives. You know, the, the and the hydro prices, I think, was the prime example of that. Um, I also think that if I went back now, would I would I sell off um, the portion of Hydro One that he did? I don't know. When I first lost government in 2018, um, I was convinced that we had done the right thing. And I do think that there is a strong argument for leveraging uh, old assets to buy new assets because we we did that in order to build transit. But um, people in the province felt betrayed by that. And um, it's certainly something that I wish could have turned out differently, you know, not just politically, but I wish that people um, didn't feel that I had uh, I had betrayed their trust. You know, so those are those are the the things that at three o'clock in the morning (laughs) still dance around in my head. Well, uh, you know, in politics, there are often hard decisions. And I, you know, I in my I have a shorter career at the federal level, and I, I've not had the same kind of responsibility. But there are always decisions where you, you think, could I have done that yeah. differently? And, um, and, and I think you have to, as best you can spend time reflecting on those matters so that you improve your decision making going forward. But you also have to really focus on what comes next and 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 focus your advocacy on the future so um i really appreciate your time Thank I, you. it was great it was a you, great conversation i uh yeah and i um as we discussed before started recording i i am myself interested in and looking very seriously at the provincial liberal leadership as far as it goes and so it's really interesting to hear sort of your experience as as premier and uh and some of the lessons learned on that front and i i expect i will bother you down the road as uh as i continue down that path and i will have questions a number of questions having lived life at the federal and there and there is shared obviously it's not like dc and it's not like quebec where you know there are there is a, a shared party in a more serious way but uh but there's, you know, a lot of work to be done at the provincial level to rebuild the party and renew the party in a serious grassroots way. And so I, uh, I will, I, I'm sure I will pick your brain another time. So I appreciate well, the time. I look forward to it, and uh, I'm glad that I'm glad that people like you are thinking about getting involved in the leadership. That's terrific news. So you take care, and uh, thanks for reaching out. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. It's always interesting to me to hear from people who have served for such a significant period, and I'll continue to do what I can to ensure there are a range of different voices that join us here, whether it's Kathleen Wynne or Aaron O'Toole. 
And we were probably a little bit more partisan in this episode at times than in others, but it is also hard not to be frustrated here in Ontario right now, so you'll have to forgive that. As always, leave a positive review if you like what we're doing, and otherwise, until next time.